So I know we took a break in this episode, but that's because I partly had to do some reading just to appreciate the remaining part of what we are transitioning to. Author of these amazing books, The Diabetes Code, The Obesity Code, and we talked about this whole concept of reversing type 2 diabetes and are we basically you know doing it correctly is it the way to do it by giving extra insulin and this whole concept of insulin resistance and now we are going to the third which i highly recommend for everybody which is the cancer code how does this all play into that what happens when you have you know neoplasia and pathology um that's that's you know unregulated growth and who else other and i'm so appreciative to be rejoining dr jason fung how are you today very good. Thanks, Sanjay. And I think we're going to do something we've never done before, at least try. And that's going to be share, right? Some slides you had so we can, so we can really appreciate kind of this next tran transitional phase of what we're going to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, what I'm going to talk about now is sort of that third paradigm. I think the last time where we left off was the sort of genetic paradigm. And just to quickly recap, the genetic paradigm was basically what I was taught. So in the 1990s, 2000s, there was the somatic mutation theory of cancer, which is that, you know, cells are made, uh, they're growing too fast. And the reason they're growing too fast was that they have mutations in their growth genes. And the, the so we discovered these genes, the oncogenes, these tumor suppressor genes, which are growth genes. And if you happen to have a, the right mutation in those genes, then what would happen is that you would grow too fast, right? And that became the sort of uh, somatic mutation theory, which is that somatic means that it's not a germ cell. Uh, mutation uh, is how it happens. And there, uh, you know, the, 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 the sort of overwhelming uh, consensus was that this was it. So we went all in on this. And in fact, billions and billions of dollars, everybody was following this genetic uh, paradigm of cancer, this somatic mutation theory. The idea is that, say you have breast cancer or colon cancer, you have a normal cell, you expose it to some kind of mutagen. So for example, you might expose it to asbestos or tobacco smoke or any of these uh, carcinogens, and um, it would cause mutations in genes. And they're not targeted mutations, they're random mutations. But by chance, if you have a lot of mutations, by chance, one of them might hit this oncogene and therefore give you excessive growth. And then this cell would then grow. It made a few predictions. One is that every single one of these cells, so you get this mutation, and it would be a genetic clone. So this clone would just grow and grow and grow, which would mean that every single cell in this cancer is the same genetically. Okay, and then once it gets big enough, it breaks off and it goes somewhere else there were a large number of problems with the somatic mutation theory, although we didn't see it at the time. First, the cancer is not genetically homogenous. So that's a big problem because if you have uh, one clone through the whole thing, that is fine, except that we know for a fact that this tumor, so this primary tumor, has a bunch of subclones in it if you look at metastases, it has a completely different mutations. If you look at lymph nodes, if you look at anything. So there's hundreds or thousands or even millions of different cell types, all with different mutations within this primary tumor. It is not genetically homogenous. The second problem 
was that how is it possible that if these cells are getting new mutations um, and they're random mutations, how come every cancer looks the same? That is, you have 100 people in your cancer clinic. You have 100 different people whose cancers have mutated completely differently, independent of each other. And yet everybody with that stage 2 colon cancer looks exactly precisely the same. It doesn't make any sense at all, right? And if these are random mutations, then why does cancer act the same, right? You know, if, if you think about it, cancers have things the same. And this was a sort of huge breakthrough in 2000, which was the hallmarks of cancer. So prior to that, and it's an interesting story, but prior to that, nobody had looked at what makes cancer cancer, right? Everybody thought of breast cancer, colon cancer, whatever. But in 2000, a couple of uh, researchers decided, let's decide what is it that makes cancer the same? So that was the sort of beginning of this idea that we should be looking at it as a single sort of disease and how is it that it develops. But back to the, and we'll get into that in a second, but back to the sort of somatic mutation theory, uh, the other problem was that that became very clear was that it wasn't one mutation or two mutations. All these things had hundreds and hundreds of mutations. And to that same point, I think part of the, you know, like people get confused sometimes when you start therapy. It's like, you know, did I respond or did I not? And we wish it was kind of binary, but sometimes four out of the five spots that we know of, you know, decrease in size, but then one is like the same or growing. And that's where this whole thought of, of, you know, should we provide radiation to that one spot? When people are opting to do that, it's because that is a different tumor type, is a variant, just like, you know, people think of COVID and like the vaccine works for this one, doesn't work for this one. It's because these things are very heterogeneous, like you said. It's not, it's not like every spot in your body, that tissue that they sampled and the mutational testing they would get on the specific tissue, that was on the tumor spot that they biopsy. It doesn't necessarily represent yeah. when they ran for molecular, I'm sorry, you don't have any of these mutations. It doesn't necessarily represent the one that's in another place in your body at the same time, because exactly. we know they, that's not, that's not a debate. That is, that is, that's fact, right? Yeah. And so exactly. hopefully, as long as we're using targeted therapy, hopefully having this like, you know, serum testing or basically liquid testing of the shedding of DNA until we get to where your mind is at with how to treat neoplasia or, or cancer as a whole, like the actual process of unregulated cell growth that maybe you could open up to some targets, which again, if that's going to pick up more targets and targeted therapy, it may not work on the original tissue type. That was the core anyway, but somewhere else. And and then you start just going down this rabbit hole because you're like, how many things can I treat at once? Because they're all a little different and some work on some and some don't on the, on the other. And it's not feasible. So that's why I'm so eager about what you're going to share, which is let's not do the oncogene driver stuff. Let's just talk about the process and where in there can something be changed Exactly. So this is what I'm talking about. So this was in 2013, Bert Vogelstein, he did a paper in science. And this is basically what he's showing, right? So you have a founder cell here, and then you have multiple clones. There's four here, but there's probably thousands. The primary tumor here in section A, you see that there's multiple clones within it. As soon as you go off to different metastases, maybe it starts off as this sort of orange and this sort of blue. But by the time you look at it, this metastases has probably hundreds of different clones as well. So these, you know, these 
in in one single patient, which is what you're talking about, in one single patient, you're going to have like tens, hundreds, maybe thousands of different clones here, and tens or thousands uh, here too. And the problem too is that when you get to patient one to patient two, they have not the same mutations at all. Everything is completely different. If you look at the, the different mutations, you know, it, if you look here, for example, colorectal, you might be talking on average about, you know, this is the non-synonymous uh, mutations per tumor. How many mutations? So one, one or two mutations, which was that sort of single hit, multiple hit theory that I was taught in the 90s. You're looking at, I don't know, 500 mutations, 700 mutations for this colorectal cancer. 180, Whoa. like you cannot treat this because you have 180 mutations, right? It's just way too many. And if you look at between patients, how many mutations in total? This is the Cosmic Database 2018. This is the catalog of somatic mutations. So they took all the known mutations that are found in cancer. How many do you have? Just coding mutations alone. Almost 6 million different mutations. Okay, so it's not like one or two. It's not like BCR able, right? With um, or it's not her too new. There's six million of these damn things. So how are you going to see them? Now the other problem was that you have the other opposite problem, right? The somatic mutation theory says when you get this mutation, you get this cancer. So you have to ask yourself the sort of denominator problem, which is that. How many people have these mutations but don't get cancer, okay? Mm. Because if you're saying that it's this mutation causes this cancer, can you get this mutation and not get this cancer? Turns out, absolutely yes. So here's a study from Nature Genomics. So this is in 2012. Again, remember 2010s is when the whole somatic mutation theory just falls right down. It's, it completely is wrong. We know that. It's not that it's wrong. It's just incomplete. So they, this is by age. This is the number of people who have mutations, the frequency. And they look at 31,000 cancer cases and 26,000 controls. So these cancer cases have cancer. The controls don't have cancer. And what they find is that the vast majority, if not all of the aberrations that are affected in the cancer-affected cohort, are also seen in the cancer-free subject. In other words, mm. that you almost have, yes, there's a few more mutations in the cancer group, but not by a lot. You know, 90% of the, of the people with this same mutation, same mutation, do not get cancer. So it's not so simple that you get this mutation, you get this cancer. Most of the people get this mutation, don't get this cancer. And again, this was covered in the New York Times as well. This was in 2018. And what they did was they took cancer-free individuals and they sampled them and they took this normal esophageal tissue that was there for a different reason. And what they what you see is this is the number of mutations. You see, as you get older, you get a bunch of mutations. So a few, a few hundred mutations per cell in their 20s. Late in life, you get about 2,000 mutations per cell. So this, you get the same mutations in these known cancer-causing genes but no cancer. 
So it's Otherwise not known as oncogenes or oncogenes, like how we learn. Yes. Yeah. Like so you have the mutations in those oncogenes, but you don't get the cancer. And why is that, right? So the somatic mutation theory was just clearly not true. It, it, it wasn't didn't explain anything. There's a huge number of problems. And what's worse is that not only does it not explain anything, in the intervening time, it produces very few treatment breakthroughs like we saw with HER2-NU or BCR-ABLE with uh, CML. So that gets us to, so, so those are the problems. So now we get to the 2010s. Everybody's a little bit bummed because this is not, this is not working out. So they come in and the sort of beginnings of this evolutionary theory uh, start with the um, uh, the hallmarks of cancer, which is one of the most cited uh, papers in cancer. And basically uh, what they did was they said, uh, okay, for let's, let's think about cancer. What is it that makes cancer cancer? Because you have breast cancer, you have colorectal cancer. They're nothing alike. They're treated differently. They have different staging, but what makes them cancer? And they came up with a number of hallmarks of cancer which are the same, okay? And this is this famous paper here. And basically, there's, a, there's eight of them now, but they basically group, you can group them into sort of four hallmarks. One is that they grow, right? So cancer cells grow and normal cells don't, right? So your liver doesn't get bigger. It just stays the same size, whereas liver cancer just keeps getting bigger. Second is that they're immortal cells. That is, normal cells don't live forever. You have a hayflick limit, which means that you can only divide a certain number of times before you stop growing. Whereas cancer cells are completely immortal. You can keep going. And that's the, the story of Henrietta Lacks, where her cervical cancer cells are still being produced now. The third major thing is that they move around. So normal cells, your liver doesn't move around. It doesn't just go and hop a, you know, ride on the, in the blood vessels to the brain. But liver cancer will do that, right? So that's a hallmark of all cancers. And then there's glycolysis, which is the energy, the, how the cancer produces energy. And this is a fascinating problem because glycolysis is a very primitive sort of energy generation. Glycolysis uh, is anaerobic generation. So without oxygen, your one, uh, one molecule of glucose produces two ATP, lactic acid. That's why when you sprint, you get lactic acid, you get the burn and you have to stop. Uh, if you use oxidative phosphorylation, this is you, you, you use oxygen, that's oxidative, and then you burn this glucose and you get 36 ATP, which is the cellular energy. So you get like 18 times as much uh, of, of energy per glucose. And yet cancer, so you think that cancer, because it's growing all the time, needs a lot of energy, it should use oxidative phosphorylation, but it doesn't. The Warburg effect says that cancer, and this is most cancers, actually use glycolysis. That is, they produce very little ATP and lactic acid. And most, the majority of cancers do this. And it's not, and, 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 and there's theories why, and we'll get into that in the future, but these are the hallmarks of cancer. This is what differentiates them. So as you start to think about what causes, how does cancer develop? Because this idea that you get a bunch of mutations randomly, and then all of a sudden it goes, just doesn't, just doesn't uh, compute. So in the 2010s, they uh, started to think. Sorry, I was saying it's like the same way. That, like uh, when, like if somebody has a BRCA mutation or Lynch syndrome, I've heard families. I'm like, oh, you're not doing something about it, you know? And they're like, well, my whole family apparently has it, and you know, they haven't gotten cancer. So it's it, then that's germline now. So you're talking about somatic, but even somatic. the same concept 
can be appreciated. If you have that inherent mutation, you're born with it in all of your cells. And there are people that don't end up with, like, if it's not 100%, then that tells you that there's something else there. It's not just having that mutation that is going to definitively cause breast cancer or vena cancer, right? And and, yeah. and that may be a, a different example to appreciate the same fact. Yeah. And people talk about these genetic things like uh, BRCA and breast cancer, but you have to realize that, you know, the risk of uh, breast cancer and BRCA uh, in today is much higher. So if you have that mutation, your risk of breast cancer is quite high, actually. But in the 30s, it was actually quite low. So there's been a difference. And the change, of course, is is uh, environmental mostly. So anyway, so as they're trying to understand what is cancer, how does it develop, they uh, start, you know, some some new people, they bring in some new people, the National Cancer Institute, actually asked a bunch of non-cancer doctors to get involved. One of them was Paul Davies, who's actually an astrobiologist. Um, and he, they, you know, they called him up and they said, we want you to work on cancer. And he's like, uh, yeah, I'm sort of, I don't work on cancer. I know nothing about cancer. And then the NCI, the National Cancer Institute said, good, we want you because we want to bring some new thinking into cancer. So he talked about a, a few things. He said, okay, well, you know, the good thing is that I'm coming in with no preconceptions. So, you know, he, he thinks about it and says, what is cancer? That's a big question, right? And why does it exist? Because all the cancer doctors, they're all thinking about how to treat it, but they're not thinking about what is this disease known as cancer and why does it exist? And one of the things he realizes quickly is that cancer is not a human disease. You can actually find it in every single one of your cells, but every single multi-celled organism can also develop cancer. So even if you look at hydra, which are these very, very primitive cells, you know, we used to look at them in the microscope in high school, you know, you put a drop on a slide and you see them, they get cancer. So the, the thing is that if you're just looking at human cancers and you want to understand cancer, it's not that useful because cancer actually predates humanity. Dogs get cancer, cats get cancers, rats get cancer. Everything gets cancer. So, so the answer to how cancer developed or why it develops actually doesn't lie in studying human cancer. You have to go back further because it's really as old as life itself. So when you start to think about life on Earth, there's sort of two huge jumps in terms of there's, there's two uh, things that were uh, quite monumental in terms of the development on life uh, on Earth as we know it. One was the sort of uh, move from prokaryotes to eukaryotes, so very primitive cells to sort of multi-celled with a bunch of nucleus and all this sort of stuff. But the other really big, big, big jump was the jump to multicellularity. So we started all as single-celled organisms, like bacteria, like yeast, for example. And when you jump to multicellularity, it's really important because there's a fundamental difference between a single-celled organism and a multi-celled organism. Because if you think at the cellular level, each individual cell, each individual yeast, for example, is in competition with all its other cells. Like you're going to compete for resources. You're going to compete for food. You're going to compete for space. Um, and it's really a survival of the fittest sort of thing. When you get multiple cells all together, you have to, you can't compete with each other because the cells in your liver can't compete with each other, right? You have to actually cooperate. 
So you take these cells and you put them all together and then you can form more complex things like hearts and then humans. But this, this jump from a single cell to multiple cells working together is actually fundamentally different than the other. And they're different in several different ways. If you think about a single-celled organism, single-celled organisms just continue to grow. There is no limit on that growth. So you put bacteria on a Petri dish, it will grow until there's no food left, right? You get exponential growth until everything dies. Nobody looks out and says, hey, we should ration ourselves, right? Whereas multi-celled organism, growth is not like that. It's very tightly controlled because you have to, you have to cooperate, right? There's only so much space. So you have to cooperate for the good of the organism. This is looking only out for the good of the cell. Single-celled organisms are immortal, right? They divide indefinitely, yeast, bacteria, whatever. Multi-celled organisms have this hayflick limit. They have the telomere at the end and it gets shorter and shorter until you can't divide anymore. Single-celled organisms tend to move around. So they have all different ways that it moves around, right? Whether it's swarming or twitching. The point is that it moves. Whereas single-celled organisms don't move. Your liver doesn't move. It's locked into where it's supposed to be. And they have, you know, cellular adhesion molecules, ECAM, ICAM, all of these different adhesion molecules to stick the liver to where it's supposed to be. And the other thing is that single-celled organisms use glycolysis. They ferment. Whereas multi-celled organisms, they only ferment in the absence of oxygen. In the presence of oxygen, they all use oxidative phosphorylation. And if you think about it, that's precisely the difference between a cancer cell and a normal cell. And that's not a coincidence. If you think about a single-celled organism, the priority is its own cell, right? The yeast is looking after itself. It's not looking after the yeast, you know, next door to it. When you become an organism like a human, the cells have to work together. I'll sacrifice 100,000 skin cells if it means that the organism will survive. The, the way that they operate, cancer cells and single-celled organisms compete with other cells, whereas the multi-celled organism, the cells are cooperating. We talked about the hallmarks of cancer, and those are all hall hallmarks of single-celled organisms too. And if you think about it, there's actually many, many, many different ways that they're the same. So they despecialize, right? So organisms, multi-celled organisms specialize. You have heart cell, you, you get your cells together, you make a heart, you make a kidney, so on. Cancer cells, they don't do that. They're just a big glob of stuff. Same as single-celled organisms. Yeast just become a giant glob. They have to do everything for themselves. They're autonomous. That is, the, the, both the cancer cell and the single-celled organism look out for itself. It will destroy the host. Right? So bacteria, of course, destroy us in its quest to get better. You have exponential growth, you invade new environments, you compete for resources, and you have genomic instability. So remember that single-celled organisms, they, they, you know, they, they, there's no sexual division, right? So the only way that they can change their genes is to have an unstable genome so that they have these mutations that come in all the time. Cancer cells, of course, have a very unstable genome, whereas multi-celled organisms do not. So in all these different ways, the cancer cell is actually acting as a single-celled organism. So if you think about it, cancer behaves much like an invasive species, like a bacteria, or sometimes I think, as you said, as like a virus, right? If you think about infections in cancer, 
they're much more alike than other diseases. If you think about heart disease, for example, the other big one, do they invade tissue? Yes. Cancer, yes. Infections, yes. But heart disease doesn't, you know, all of a sudden invade the lung. Does it metastasize? For sure. Both infections and cancer do. But heart disease never metastasizes into something else. Resistance? Absolutely. You treat cancer with radiotherapy. The next time you treat it with radiotherapy, it doesn't work. Where do you see that? You see that in the treatment with antibiotics. It's exactly the same. Do you get that with heart disease? Like you stent something and then you're resistant to stenting? No, absolutely not. Genetic mutation. So cancer, you treat it, it mutates. Bacteria, you treat it, it changes. Absolutely. Heart disease, it's the same disease. It's the same disease over and over. Do these cells evolve? Yes. Do they secrete other things? Cancer does, infection does, right? You get the bacterial slime, cancer, you have all sorts of other things. Whereas heart disease, you don't. It's just the clogged up artery. But it really behaves like a single-celled organism that is now invasive. And the question is, how does this develop, right? So if we say, okay, so now we know sort of what this cancer actually is. How does it develop? And you have to say, is it a forward evolution or is it a backward evolution? So the point is that if you think about this is this is the the uh, sort of evolutionary theory. So you have an original unicellular genome. So this is the single-celled organism, okay? And it has to compete. It competes, right? And then as it evolves to multicellularity, you don't lose this original genome, right? You don't lose this original playbook of genes. What you do is you add genes on top. So you say, okay, so initially they're immortal. This blocks the immortality, right? Initially, it wants to grow. This blocks the growth. Initially, it wants to move around. This blocks it. And then initially, it wants to do this. This is the work effect. This is what it is. But that original playbook, that original sort of kernel of single-celled organism is still there. The idea is that the kernel of cancer exists in every single one of our cells. So as you become a multi-celled organism, this is what our genome is, as you become cancer, you're not adding new mutations. You're knocking off these mutations. And then you're revealing the underlying kernel of cancer. That is that kernel of cancer, which is the unicellular ancestor from which we all evolved, is already preformed in every living cell of every animal on Earth. And that's how you explain how cancer exists in every single cell type. It doesn't matter. Breast, lung, heart, you know, cervix, whatever it is. Same thing. Every multi-celled organism can develop cancer. Why? Because that is how we evolve from singularity. And if you think about it, it's a backwards evolution from a multi-cell towards a single cell. And that's actually how cancer is described. If you think about how pathologists read cancer, it's a primitive cell. It's a de-differentiated cell. It's anaplastic. Anaplastic means back formation. It's going backwards. All of these describe a backwards evolution to a more primitive feature, which is called an atavism. You're not getting more evolved cells. You're getting less evolved cells. So you're not adding new mutations. You're knocking off these things that reveal the underlying 
primitive playbook of the single-celled organisms because it was there all along. Yeah, it, that's it, we actually the timeliness is so fitting. We had a episode with Dr. Michael Levin at Tufts, so he's bioelectric uh, study of cancer, and he introduced me to this concept that I was just completely unaware of. But his whole point is what you keep saying. It's like they we have they have their inherent ability to basically propagate and like and survive the way they need to on a unicellular level. He's like when you have this electric harmony, this sense of like community or where everything is like in motion and working together, then that is like exactly what you said. The skin cells know what they have to do for the sake of the body, this and that. There's this communi- community, like like the most ideal, you know, community sense possible. And he's like, but when one escapes the bioelectric circuit and whatever that reason may be, whether it's a mutation, whether it's, you know, the things that you're telling us about or related to, to sugars and cancer, he says it's the escape that just now all of a sudden sinks it back to what its inherent coding is, which is survival. And it can't, it, it just loses touch or its senses with its environment and does what it's supposed to do. Almost in a way where you kind of empathize with it because you're like, you've ju- you're just doing what you like are taught to do and inherently have always been taught to do because you've been out of sync with the harmony of your environment around you. Absolutely. Because you're going back to a more survivable Sort of the multi-celled organism is great because you can specialize, but the survivability is with the unicellular organism. So what you have right. is this sort of normal lung tissue, which now moves back towards cellularity, towards the embryonic stem cell. And that explains how all these tissues, you know, uh, develop. And the, 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 the thing is that actually a lot of evidence exists for that, because if you're saying, if we're saying, and we're hypothesizing that cancer is a disease that is found at the sort of uh, border between unicellular genes and multicellular genes, then we can go back and say, okay, where are not not which genes are mutated, but when are these genes mutated? So let's take all of the genes that we know about and divide them into these phylostrata. Phylostrata are Homo sapiens here, which is the most sort of recent genes. And then you can divide all your entire genome into, by evolutionary age, by millions of years, the more ancient genes, right? These are multicellular genes. These are unicellular genes. And these are sort of recent genes. And these are ancient genes. And where do you find the mutations in cancer? Well, it's all here all here, right in the unicellular genes, right? It's not the multicellular stuff. We're looking in these genes, these human genes, but all the genes that you need to worry about are the oldest ones. Again, same thing. This is age in millions of years. These are the oldest genes. This is all human genes. You see that over-mutated and under-mutated genes in cancer, they're roughly in proportion with all human genes. They're not really, not really different until you get to the unicellular genes. That is where all your gene mutations in cancer happens. Not your new genes, your old genes, because that is the point where you're switching over from unicellularity to multicellularity. That's where all of your genetic mutations happen. You can't look for it like, you know, the gene for this, gene for this. You have to look at the age of the gene. Same thing here, you break it down into phylostrata and these two areas right here and right here, whether you look at Sanger Cosmic, so that's that giant database, 
and you look at where all the gene mutations happen, it's all right here in the very early strata. Right here is that, so these are unicellular genes, and this is the transition right here. Again, another, another study, uh, this is from 2016. So again, if you look at where these genes mutate, like what, when are they mutated? The phylostrata, it's all right here. So everything here you see is roughly in line with where it's supposed to be. But all the mutations happen right here, which is right here, which is from here, protozoa, single-celled organism, to multi-celled organism. That is exactly when. It's mind-boggling. Truly, it is. So the question now is that we know that cancer is a reversion. It's an activism towards the single-celled organisms. It's a reversion to the single-celled organism existence. But why? Why is it doing that, right? It's extraordinarily complex to do this. And it shows the same in everything. Why? And there's only really one biological force that is strong enough, which is evolution. Evolution requires three things. You need genetic heterogeneity, you need time, and you need selection pressure. So this is the classic Charles Darwin. You have a bird and it, it, you know, it gets to an island and it feeds on nuts, right? So you, there's a lot of nuts around. So the bird evolves these big, thick beaks. On the other side of the island, it feeds on fruit. So it gets these thin beaks. So the, re the thing about evolution is that you have to have gener genetic heterogeneity. So certain birds have thicker beaks and they get selected. It's a selection pressure by the environment. And then you need time, chronicity, right? So you need these three things. And what is the selection pressure that is pushing the normal cell towards a primitive cell? And that's chronic sublethal injury. So we'll talk about chronicity first because any, any chronic sublethal injury causes cancer because it chooses, it, it chooses the most survivable cell, right? Your breast cancer cell right now is working fine, working fine, working fine, or your lung cell is working fine. All of a sudden, it's, it's encouraging damage over time, chronic damage, it's going to choose the most survivable cell, which are those ones that can grow, that are immortal, that are are, are uh, can move around. So, so if you look at the you're, problem, you're saying, more, you're saying it's more damage, like to the actual cell, than it is like genetic mutations over time, as we discussed yeah, in the somatic that's what, theories. There are genetic mutations, but it's this chronic damage. Now there are genetic pro, like there are genetic cancers, right? But the majority are not. Breast cancer is not a purely genetic, you know, one gene mutation. There are a few, right? Retinoblastoma and some of these other ones, especially the childhood ones. Right. There are purely, almost purely genetic. Yeah, that older, like, you know, person cancer that really isn't clear. It's just like a like your basic histopathological, like breast cancer, prostate cancer. I mean, Thomas Seafried, he was arguing that that damage, he took it a step further and said it's mitochondrial damage, like specifically. It's that is, probably. you know, primer, but, but yeah. he... He was very strong on that is everything, which I'm, you know, I'm sure there's more to it uh, than than just mitochondrial. But these this damage occurs how is it because of like everyone says inflammation, inflammation, and it can be any damage. Multi obviously, it can be any damage. Yeah. So you know, first it has to have time, right? Chronicity is the key because if you look at acute injuries versus chronic injuries, acute injuries never cause cancer, right? Hepatitis A and E cause acute damage but don't cause cancer. It's only hepatitis B that does. 
Same thing with a burn. And you get a burn, you don't get cancer. But you get chronic sun exposure, you do. You get occasional soot, you don't get cancer. If you get chronic soot, you get, you know, uh, scrotal cancer. Same thing with radiation. Everybody was worried about acute radiation, but it's actually the chronic radiation that causes uh, damage. So the idea is that if you think about it, it's, it's really the difference between uh, sort of a single-celled organism, like, and think of it like a, a single man in the woods, right? You have to do everything yourself. You're competing with other people for resources versus somebody in New York City, for example, where everybody has to, uh, you know, co cooperate. Why do you go from sort of New York City to the single person in the woods? And it's because the survivalist is what you're selecting for. So if you have too much injury, right? So you think about smoking. You have too much injury, just kill everything. Everything's dead, right? If you have too little injury, so if, you know, you're bombed out shell. If you have too little injury, you, you just repair it and that's it. But in the middle there, you have this chronic sublethal cellular injury, which is kind of cause a cellular adaptation. That is, the cells are there, but if they don't do anything, they're going to die. So they actually try to survive. And the way they survive is that everything breaks down like law and order. That is, it's all of a sudden, it's every cell for themselves, right? Because you, you don't have this sort of well-ordered uh, thing to do. So everybody tries to do itself, and then you're going to select for those cells that are closer to, uh, you know, that primitive sort of phenotype. So in essence, what you're doing is you evolve to cellularity. You have this. The kernel of cancer is there, and then this survivalist sort of core of cancer, which is really just the unicellular organism, you knock these off so that you can reveal what's underneath. And the interesting thing about it is that this evolution, this idea that cancer evolves from an evolutionary process is actually, we actually know it happens. So this is an evolutionary tree, branch chain evolution. We have bacteria, they branch off here, eukaryotes branch off here. This is what it looks like. Well, this is what cancer looks like. This is from the New England Journal of Medicine. They took a bunch of biopsies, right, from this site. They took a biopsies from lung metastases, chest wall metastases, and you can create the exact same thing. You see how it evolves. You have a normal tissue, and then you have this mutation, this mutation, this mutation, this mutation, this mutation, these are shared metastases. These are all the metastatic cancers have this, but some branch off here, some branch off here, branch off here, branch off here. Why? Because you're selecting them. So not only do you have genetic heterogeneity, you have multiple, multiple clones, which remember is one of the key problems with the somatic mutation theory, but you can actually see how all of these cancers evolve, which ones you're selecting for. That's the way it is. And so all sources of sublethal injury are potentially carcinogenic because what you've got is this chronic damage. So even things like Barrett's esophagus, which is normal stomach acid, anything that's going to cause chronic damage is going to be carcinogenic. Inflammatory bowel disease. There's nothing particularly uh, mutagenic about it, but there is chronic inflammation. And the chronic inflammation is chronic damage. And therefore, you're going to select for survivable cases cirrhosis, any type of cirrhosis is going to increase your risk of cancer. Now, we've always known this. In fact, it was sort of buried back when we were talking, when I learned about cancer, we talked about genetic mutations, but everybody's saying, well, any chronic damage to the cell causes cancer, right? Sunburns cause it, 
the radiation causes it. So the very thing that you're treating cancer with causes cancer. Same thing with chemotherapy. What you're treating cancer with causes cancer because these are sources of cellular damage. Anything. It's almost everything in medicine is like that. So what you've got is this reversion to unicellular existence, which is brought on by the evolution from chronic sublethal injury. Now you have to find out what that injury is and then uh, go from it. But this evolutionary paradigm explains so much about it. Um, and then, and that's only the formation of it. And then what I'm going to go into is sort of how metastasis happens and then the implications of this evolutionary paradigm, because it has a number of implications for what, what we do. So if we think about this sort of evolutionary paradigm, this explains a heck of a lot more uh, than random mutations, right? Man, random mutations just doesn't explain it. But you have to explain it further. So you have to say, okay, well, you have the primary tumor formation, which we've gone over. Then you have local invasion. You have intravasation, which is getting into the blood vessels, metastasis. How does this happen? So metastasis is very interesting because how do you mutate a cell? Think about a breast cell or a lung cell. A lung cell, the way we typically think about metastasis is that it grows, it grows, it grows, breaks off, and then lodges into your lung. How does it survive or lodges into your bone? How does a lung cell survive in the bone? Like the matrix is completely different. There's nothing there. A breast cell is like, hey, where's all the milk, milk ducts? You know, there's nothing in this liver. It's going to get killed. Why would it evolve how to survive in the lung? Like a lung is, how is a, a lung cell? Why would it evolve the ability to survive in the liver? It makes no sense at all that that's what it should do. It can only do that if it involves that ability. So talking about uh, invasion, first we'll talk about the Warburg effect. So this is the, the, the whole thing. This is oxidative phosphorylation. Glucose, oxygen, right? You get 36 ATP and carbon dioxide. This is not what cancer does. There's plenty of oxygen, but it doesn't do that. And one of the things is that if there's lots of glucose around, then it doesn't matter how much like you get 36 ATP for one glucose. But if you have ton, tons of glucose, then this is not a limiting step. So therefore, there's no advantage to this. But if you think about what cancer does, it gives you two ATP, lactate, and carbon building blocks. So you can use this lactate as a building block. So that they, they talk about this. You know, the, the, the traditional way of thinking about this Warburg effect is that, well, this is just a defect, right? The vast majorities of cancers, you glycolysis, have this Wilbur effect. And the standard view is that it's some kind of metabolic defect. That is, cancer is stupid, right? Okay, that's not a very good theory because if the vast majority of cancers are using glycolysis and it's working for them, then by definition, it's not stupid. We're the stupid ones for saying it's stupid instead of looking into why the Warburg effect is so beneficial for cancer. So we're looking at it all wrong. We're saying cancer is stupid. It's like, no, it's not stupid because the point is, and my theory, this is, this needs, uh, you know, is that the lactate is highly beneficial for the cancer. Why? So lactic acid so it's producing tons and tons. This cancer cell is producing 
tons and tons of lactic acid. Remember that this cancer cell, there's a lot of things trying to kill it, right? There's all these immune cells that are trying to kill it. So if you dump a bunch of lactic acid outside, it's going to protect this cancer cell from the other cell because it's not going to work as well. If you remember, it destroys the other cells, right? Because remember, it's now in competition with other cells. So anything that makes its neighbor weaker makes it stronger. It breaks through the basement membrane, so it helps it invade other tissues, and it creates inflammation, right? Lactic acid is going to create inflammation, which is going to create angiogenesis and bring in macrophages, like the tumor-associated macrophages that we see. Because when you get inflammation, your body releases all kinds of growth factors. It's going to build, it's going to create new blood vessels. It's going to have tumor-associated macrophages, which is going to bring in new growth cells, because that's what happens. You cut yourself, you get inflammation, but you actually need to grow. You need to grow that skin to repair it. And the cancer loves that because remember, you have to look at it not as some genetic, you know, freak. It's a new invasive species. This is good. Lactic acid is good for the cancer. And it creates this hypoxic acidic environment, which does a number of things. So this is a blood vessel. So what you get when you get this sort of hypoxic acidic environment in two is that you release HIF, which is, well, I can't remember off the top of my head. It's, um, it's one of the factors, uh, hypoxic inducible factor. And what it does, right, hypoxic, it's hypoxic. And uh, what you get is all of these effects, angiogenesis. ECM uh, remodeling, the motility, invasion, metastases. These are all the things you're activating with hypoxia-inducible factor, which is good if you have a hypoxic acidic area. So that's good for the tumor. That's why lactic acid is good for the tumor. And that is a lot better explanation as to why cancer loves to use the Warburg effect because it's using glucose not just for energy, but it's using to produce this highly beneficial substance for itself. It's a lot better than, oh, cancer is stupid, but it's killing us and we're losing the war. So, but, you know, the, the, the next step is metastasis. So this lactic acid sets up because it breaks down a lot of basement membranes and metastasis. So how does this metastasis happen? Say you have a lung cell and it goes to the bone. How does this lung cell know how to get to the bone? And this is the idea that uh, it's, it's not, metastasis is not a late event. It's an extremely early event. So the hypothesis is that, okay, so you have a primary tumor. And as soon as it develops, before you can even see it on CT scan, it's sending out cancer cells. Okay, it's just sloughing off. Cancer cells are getting into the blood and they're getting wiped out. They can't survive. You know, the blood is flowing. It's turbulent. It can't grab onto the, you know, the side of the blood vessel wall. And there's immune, uh, immune mediators and uh, immune cells that are just killing it all the time. So these cancer cells that get into the circulation die very fast. Once in a while, because there's genetic heterogeneity, this cancer cell survives. But it can't live because if you have a cancer cell that's, you know, conditioned to live in the lung 
and it lands in the liver. Well, it has no idea how to live in the liver, so it dies. So anywhere it goes, it dies. The only place it can come back to is back to the original site. So it gets in the blood, circulates through, and then lands back in the original tumor site. This is called tumor self-feeding. But those cancer cells that have survived, you've now placed on it a selective pressure, right? This is evolution. You sent out 10 million cells and one survived. That one that survived was selected because it was slightly more survivable than the other 9.9 million cells. So when it comes back to that original site, so you have a you know burgeoning lung cancer, sends out lung cancer cells, all of them die, all of them die, all of them die. One of them comes back to the original site. Now it goes back, it's in its, it's, in its citadel, it's in its uh, sanctuary. So it can grow, but it's not the same cell that left. It's been selected for a more survivable cell. So it starts to grow, and then again, it sends it out, sends it out. And it keeps going, keeps going, keeps going until you select for it. Now you're this, because you're getting tumor self-seeding, you're getting multiple genetic clones that now develop within the primary tumor site. It's not a single genetic clone that has grown to like two centimeters. It consists of multiple clones because it's undergone multiple, multiple cycles of, of selection. And then eventually it just keeps going and going. And that's how it keeps like, developing. Like COVID, like every letter, like it's, you know, we had like alpha through zeta basically and the different variants. It's, it, it's cloned. And, and one example too that I think of when you're saying this is like prostate cancer. It's like, why is prostate cancer two different buckets? It's like you're castrate sensitive and it's like, okay, good. Like you're probably going to have, you know, good disease control, et cetera. But the moment you've selected by depriving, you know, testosterone for a period of time, the moment it becomes castrate resistant, and that's what I teach my residents and everything. I'm like, when a patient gets admitted, understand where they are with their cancer if they're castrate sensitive versus resistant. Because when they're resistant, it's a whole different scenario. And it is nothing like just just having prostate cancer. Because you've selected for something now that doesn't require the testosterone to grow. And in general, we've somehow made it more aggressive. Like, I, it's almost as if you'd question like, Say you had one or two sensitive, you know, you haven't deprived the body of testosterone. Would they live at that slow growing rate for two years versus giving testosterone, making everything go away for a year? But then in that next six months, it's even more aggressive than it would have been to quote unquote, let it ride. I mean, that's an interesting, I guess, way of thinking. Exactly. I don't know. In fact, this is exactly right. Because this paradigm, this evolutionary paradigm, asked the question in prostate cancer, should you use maximally tolerated dose? Because... Remember, if you have, so here you have, this is what you're talking about, right? A sensitive cell in purple, a resistant cell in green. If you use a maximally tolerated dose, you wipe out all the purple, the green proliferates. All of a sudden, your stuff don't work anymore. If you use just an adaptive dose, that is over time you kill a few, but the green one still stays relatively small. And each time the number of prostate cancer cells goes up, you sort of knock it down. Just with a small dose, not the maximally tolerated dose, do you do better? In fact, there's a lot of data to suggest that a lot of these tumors do better. Why? Because this maximally tolerated dose is introducing a selection pressure. You can only understand the implications if you understand cancer as an evolutionary disease. Otherwise, you'd say, yes, let's give the max dose. Remember all that... um, 
autologous bone marrow transplants didn't work. Why? Because your treatment is actually introducing a selection pressure. That is, when you have um, a, a, um, you know, a chronic infection, do you just give, you know, maximum antibiotics forever? Hell no, because you're going to get resistance. That's the same thing we're doing here. Because cancers and infections are very similar. They're both single-celled organisms. If you just keep giving maximum dose, it's going to stop working extremely quickly. So the whole point is that this evolutionary paradigm changes everything. It changes even uh, when we talk about screening. It changes about you know liquid biopsies. If 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 metastasis is an early event, you can pick up these cancer cells with sensitive screening before they get wiped out by the blood. It explains why any type of immune suppression leads to an increased risk of cancer because cancer is like an evolutionary disease. It's like a single-celled organism. It's like an uh, invasive species. Your immune system is trying to kill it. If you suppress the immune system for whatever reason, right, whether it's transplants or whatever, you're going to get more cancer, just like you get more infections. Exactly the same. If you talk about screening, this is the other thing that's sort of really fascinating to me. Uh, if you look at mammography, it's been controversial. Why? Because if you look, and this is from the New England Journal in 2014, if you look at the effect of screening of mammography, you have people who you screen, you get at the end of five years, you know, 956 women alive, four die of breast cancer and some die of other causes. If you screen them, you still get the same 956 women alive. There's virtually no benefit to screening in this population, which is younger women, right? And there's multiple harms of these false positives, the ones you biopsy and so on, but your actual benefit is extremely small. And it's hard to understand why there's such small benefits because you think that, hey, if you're picking up these cancers early, then why are you not seeing any benefit? Because this is what people think. Small tumor grows to a large tumor, which now breaks off and metastasizes. Screening blocks you from going from a small tumor to a big tumor, right? Because you're picking up these at a small site. But it doesn't work. So the question is why it doesn't work. And again, you can't understand that until you understand the evolutionary paradigm of cancer. And it's because micrometastases come very early. It's not the size that kills you. It's the metastases that kill you. So in order to uh, it, it's, not this, it's, it's, it's not how many small tumors or big tumors you pick up. What you have to do is try to stop the late stage tumors, picking up, and what happens with mammography, so again, this is from the New England Journal. Uh, I'll blow this up a little bit. If you look at what happens is that when you do mammography, you pick up a lot of early stage cancer, but you don't decrease the number of late stage cancers. So you're picking up a lot of DCIS, stage one cancers, that would have never progressed. Your immune system would have kept it in check or it eventually would have been picked up. You're not reducing the number of late stage cancer, which is the women who die. You need to see this number go down in order to see a benefit. But instead, what you're doing is you get the same number with late stage, so the same number of women are dying, but you're diagnosing you know, 
millions of women with early stage cancer that you're treating, you're doing, you know, you're cutting off their breasts and so on. And they would never have died. They would never have died anyway because they were early stage. So this is the 40 to 50. This is where all the controversy lie, right? Because even back here in 2012, this is 10 years ago, you see that there's actually no benefit to picking up early stage disease. You only have benefit when you reduce late stage disease because it's not the size that kills you. It's the metastases and metastases happens early. You can't pick it up with the size or you can't pick it up with mammography. Maybe another something else may do better job, but not uh, mammography. So those are some of the implications okay. um, of uh, the evolution. More... I'm sorry. Could we, not, could we not be seeing more of the picking up of the late stage because we're like taking it out at an early stage? Like, is that could that be a theoretical reason for the flatline? Yeah, because well, that's what we thought. If you take out this early stage, they're not going to progress to a late stage. But it didn't happen. Right. This is 1984 to 2008. There's 14 years of uh, data that we have, and it never actually happened. That uh, so so a lot of places have actually recommended against. Remember, we started to roll back some of the can the 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 recommendations uh, for picking it up. It, it it just didn't help. So this is completely counterintuitive to what we all thought. Yeah, uh, 100%. And that's why, you know, I always give the talk about the CT lung cancer screening is so much more radically beneficial than, you know, um, uh, mammograms and, and some of the yeah. other things are arguing yeah. colonoscopies across, across the seas. And I'm like, and it saves one out of four because almost everything is like a later stage, like it, with, with lung cancer or will be unknown and it has this potential to spread. Yeah. So a CT, for example, has, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's... These remember these are old technologies, right? PSA is an old technology. Mammograms are all together. It's possible that newer technologies like CTs might be much better at picking it up. Um, but this was the whole controversy with conventional yeah, yeah. mammograms, right? For sure. And that that and that CT for lung cancer, like where you have this like massive benefit compared to anything else with the other screening modalities besides cervical. But the one thought I'm having in my head as you're talking about cellular adaptation is, I've, I've two patients like one that had a ton of like disease like peritoneal disease liver disease from their colorectal cancer and has had a dramatic response after like four to five cycles of full fox and traditionally we're under this like you know feeling of wow we've reduced it 99 percent let's just keep going to six cycles eight cycles and just keep reducing 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 or especially this is where i'm perplexed now especially if i see no evidence of disease like and it's only been, say, like, you know, three out of the six full Fox cycles, oxaliplatin and fluorouracil. I'm thinking on this person, I'm like, should I stop trying to push and start de-escalating sooner just to not, I already have no evidence of disease on the scans now. Like, should I just continue to put this pressure on when I've seen the side of reduction? And the example I have against that, now this is purely anecdotal for anyone listening, purely meaning like this is two just random cases that I've been studied. But I have one patient, and it doesn't happen often, where they were just like, I don't want any more treatment. Like, they weren't really sick. They didn't have toxicities. They just they just had a, you know, prayed on it and had a, a weird feeling about it. Had a couple of liver meds. And I was, like, very concerned, right? It was a colorectal. There was liver meds. But when she stopped, her scans had, um, and this is just, again, for something of consideration, 
like she had no evidence of disease. The liver mess had gone away, and and which is not unusual when you start treatment. Well, she's had her, her three month and her six month scan, and there's still no disease. And I have not been treating her like for like like stage four colorectal, and we had only accomplished maybe four to six cycles. And I'm just, you know, saying nothing else other than you explaining this at least when it was so perplexing about like why is am I not seeing a more rapid you know, progression since stopping. And in this other case where they are a younger, you know, individual, uh, I want to say, I mean, pretty young. So I'm very interested in making sure that the duration of, of controllable diseases as long as possible or the lifetime of it. it, it's an interesting, very interesting thought that, you know, it's a fascinating. Yeah. That's exactly why understanding this paradigm is so important because you'd say to that person, well, now I sort of understand. We've knocked it down to the point that your own immune system can handle whatever is there. If we keep going, you know, you knock it from a million to like 10, right? But you keep going. The 10 goes to nine, but then they mutate because that's what things do. Sort of like if you have, you know, an infection, right? You have cellulitis and treat it with a week of ANSAF. After a week of ANSAF, it's mostly better. Your immune system can handle it. Do you give another month of ANSAF? No, absolutely not. You absolutely do not give more antibiotic because it's absolutely the wrong thing to do because you are going to select for resistance or a UTI, right? UTIs are classic because they get so super over-treated that you wind up getting all kinds of resistant organism, right? You get these multi-resistant E. coli in your UTI. Why? Because he gave so much damn antibiotic in the first place. You're not making it better. You're making it worse. Same thing. If you understand that cancer is an evolutionary process, then you could say, and again, this is not, I don't have data for this, right? I don't have the studies to back it up, but understanding it, you can say, I understand why this actually may be a good thing if she stops, because now if it comes back, I could hit again with fall fox or fall fairy or whatever it is that you want to hit it with, because it will work again, just like that antibiotic. You give it for the UTI, you keep hammering it with, you know, uh, whatever, it develops resistance. You give it septra, it develops septa resistance. You give it Cipro, it gets Cipro resistance. Same thing with your cancer. You give it Falfox, it's going to get Falfox resistance. You know that, I know that, everybody knows that. It's the same process. Same thing with the, the, the metastatic lady. Her immune system's keeping it in check. It's just like an infection. You can't stop cancer. Cancer is always happening. It's always a balance between cancer and our anti-cancer forces, right? That are always clashing. Same thing with um, bacteria. Bacteria all around us. It's a fight between them and our immune system. Same thing. The cancer and our immune system. And the funny part about cancer, really, is that it sounds so strange to say that it's evolved into a new species, right? It's like, wow, that's really weird. That's how our immune system sees it, right? It's when you get a cancer cell, your body recognizes it as a non-self and attacks and kills it with natural killer cells, right? You don't need to have seen this ever before. Your body will go and kill this cancer cell. So what you need to do then is enhance the immune response, which is the whole next big wave, immunotherapy, which explains why this genetic paradigm doesn't work because you can't keep pushing on it. There's 6 million mutations. You can't develop 6 million drugs. 
But what you can do is develop ways to enhance the immune system. And explains things like Coley's toxins. So Coley's toxin is a fascinating story. In the 1900s, uh, there's a patient who was dying of metastatic cancer. I think it was melanoma. Anyway, they put him in a bed with this guy who has erysipelas uh, on the other side because they didn't separate them. It was in the hospital. The guy gets super sick with erysipelas, which is a streptococcal infection, and the cancer melts away. And everybody's like, whoa, what the hell happened? Right? Why did that infection with erysipelas cure his cancer? And the answer is that it stimulated his immune system enough that the immune system then got rid of the cancer. And for years, people use so-called Coley's toxins, which is a fascinating thing where if this guy would take bacteria, this concoction of bacteria, and he would inject it into the cancer. And it actually cured a whole bunch of cancers. It was sort of gross and, you know, medieval and all this sort of stuff. But it worked. In a number of cases, it still worked. Why? Because you're causing so much inflammation that you're teaching the immune system that, hey, oh, hey, I got to fight all this bacteria. But hey, here's this other non-self. You broke through the moat. You broke through the citadel. You got in there, you got your antigen presenting cells and said, hey, you know, I'm here fighting the erysipelas, but hey, look, there's this other thing that's really bad too. And it destroyed it. So Coley's toxins was actually used for 50 plus years and it still works. In fact, it's sort of the leading edge of the immune therapy because that's what we're doing. We're trying to teach our immune system to recognize cancer. There's this so-called abscopal effect as well, which is another fascinating effect where you give radiation. So you say you radiate a, a metastatic cancer. So there's lesions all over the lung. You take the biggest one, you radiate it. And then the other lung cancer nodules go away. Why would that happen? Same thing. The radiation has broken down that cell. It's released all these antigen cells. Your immune system says, hey, now all of a sudden, you, you got rid of the cloaking device. You said, hey, here's the thing. Now you attack, now your immune system attacks all those other things. The abscopal effect was so rare, but now with immune you know, checkpoint inhibitors and all this that sort of unveil the tumors, now that when you combine the radiotherapy with the uh, immune therapy, you're seeing many, many, many uh, case reports of the abscopal effect. In fact, almost all the case reports um, are from sort of posts, you know, in the last five, six years, right? But imagine doing that, radiating one nodule and all the rest of the nodules go away. But that's why, again, understanding the evolutionary paradigm explains how all of these things might be of benefit. These phenomenon that we're observing, just like, you know, Newton and seeing the apple come down, the same concept, we're seeing it, it, it makes us realize, you know, there's something here because, in that example, like if a tumor has a microenvironment and it's protected and there's no clarity, it's like it's an obscured window. You can't see what the people look like that are the imposters in the community. And then you nuke it and you penetrate that microenvironment. All of a sudden you have all these wanted posters with very nice, you know, like they sketch somebody for like, this is the person that was in the store. And you, you're just, you've just shot it around. And all of a sudden, all these kind of like, you know, U.S. like uh, the reserve or, or U.S. guard 
is has been there ready, but not knowing quite what to identify and do. And all of a sudden they got what they need now and they can go around the entire body and say, aha, like I recognize this. I recognize that. I think it's similar to even, you know, I heard that, that for skin cancers, you know, 50 years ago, they would actually scratch and irritate with like a, like a, um, uh, basically a mechanical claw just to inflame it, to just kind of like, again, supercharge, have them have this identification. And then a lot of times that would, you know, make the lesion supposedly, uh, stable or even smaller. And that's why, exactly. you know, I, know I have to go by standard care, but I, right. And I get excited with the stage four, uh, lung cancer where there is pain from a bone lesion or something, knowing that this is a phenomenon. I'm more like likely one, I want to palliate the pain Two, it's appropriate. It's stereotactic radiation to alleviate pain from a tumor in a bone, but I can't not at least think about the fact that now I'm doing either immunotherapy or triple therapy or cytotoxic immune therapy and having this irradiation to kind of unenvelop or basically express its contents. Like you always wonder, you know, and I, and I think, you know, anecdotally, I shouldn't say this, but I just, I wonder if that's why I have you can sometimes see persistent good control or, or dramatic responses compared to those that you technically by standard of care can't radiate if there isn't a bone lesion or something that's, you know, uh, but, but, but it's something to consider, you know, it's, it's something, something to consider. judge you for that. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and again, it's, it's based on a sort of more complete understanding of this cancer as a evolutionary sort of target that is constantly evolving towards this uh, sort of other form. It's like a bacteria. It's like a virus, right? It's not like some genetic mutant that is static. If you think about it that way, there's no way scratching that melanoma will make any difference. And remember, melanoma is probably the most immune sort of sensitive thing, right? That's why we use interferons, right? Why would interferons work? I don't know if you remember, but we used to use interferons for multiple months. Yeah. Oh my. People got sick of the dawn. Yeah. yeah, that stuff was toxic like hell. But it worked, right? Why? Why does it work? How does IL-2 prevent genetic mutations? It doesn't in any way. It basically stimulates your immune system and the cancer is an invasive species, right? And that's a much better way to understand what cancer actually is. So all these new treatments for cancer all come out of this understanding. And I always think it's strange, but nobody talks about this evolutionary paradigm, but it actually changes everything. It changes everything that we do. And, and, and just trying to look for more genetic targets. Oh, here's a genetic target. Let's go for that. Well, why are you doing that and not the other 5.9 million genetic targets that are around? Like, it doesn't make any sense. It's, it's, you're, you're, you're sort of just looking at the end site. It's an old paradigm that hasn't really worked. The newer stuff is much more exciting, which comes down to also some of the nutritional things. Because again, if you think about it as a new, as an evolution, as a, as a, as a new invasive species, can you change the way that they grow by affecting their growth parameters, such as with ketogenic diets, such as with other things like that, fasting, intermittent fasting, uh, people are, are interested in. I don't think it's the whole answer uh, by any stretch, uh, nutritional uh, things, but for, um, you know, one of the things that I always thought interesting about the genetic paradigm was that obesity 
So in the 90s, we didn't ever talk about obesity as a uh, risk factor for cancer, right? In 2001, there's that big New England study that said that, hey, obesity is like a huge risk factor for cancer. So the WHO now has 14 different obesity-associated cancers. Well, obesity is not mutagenic. It does not cause gene mutations. Being fat does not cause gene mutations. So why does it cause cancer? And the answer is that it's a disease of hyperinsulinemia. Insulin is a growth factor. So if you have things that are trying to grow and you give it lots of insulin, it's going to grow. That's basically it, right? So hyperinsulinemia by itself without obesity is a risk factor for cancer. Type 2 diabetes is a risk factor. Another disease of hyperinsulinemia is a risk factor for cancer. Why? Because cancer is like an invasive species. You give it growth factors, it grows. So you got to get rid of them. Again, you can't understand that until you sort of get past this whole somatic mutation theory, which was so so sort of spectacularly wrong. And, and it always sort of pains me a little bit when I see everybody talking about genes. It's a genetic disease. It's a genetic disease. Like I hear this all the time. Yes, there are gene mutations, but you need to get that one step further and say, what is causing those gene mutations? Obesity is not mutagenic in any way. So why are you getting these gene mutations? Because you are. Breast cancer has mutations. I'm not denying that there are gene mutations. I'm not denying that retinoblastoma is genetically you know, related. But what's causing that gene mutations? So if it's a retinoblastoma and it's just a genetic defect, fine. But in colorectal cancer, what is driving those genetic mutations? Evolution. It's an evolutionary process. It's ulcerative colitis, the chronic inflammation that's coming in and out. For regular colorectal, I don't know, right? We don't know that much. But for ulcerative colitis, for sure we do. It's that chronic inflammation. For cirrhosis, for sure we do. It's that alcohol, that chronic liver damage. It's driving the evolution of those liver cells towards a primitive phenotype, which is a single-celled organism, which we also call cancer. Because the kernel of cancer is every single one of our cells. That is just, I mean, you just make it so simple, but it's like, <laughs> why are we, I mean, it's, it's, I just, it leaves me speechless. And I mean, it's smoking when, you know, what is, what's so bad about smoking, chronic damage in your lungs. That's why the incidence yeah. is so much higher in the smoke for lung cancer. Chronic um, and, but you had a target and smoke is not targeted mutation. Asbestos is not a targeted mutation. So going down this, you know, what is the genetic mutation in lung cancer? It's a useless thought because you're not looking remember evolution is about selective pressure which is about the environment right so same thing in darwin's island is it nuts or is it fruit that's what drives your mutations so what's driving the mutations in lung cancer well it's the chronic damage which is driving it towards survivability which means you need to knock off all of those recent genes and un you know unveil that sort of uh, cancer phenotype, that kernel of cancer that's there, right? It, 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 it's best the same thing, right? It's not targeted mutation. Obesity is not mutagenic. All of these things make no sense at all from a genetic, from a somatic mutation theory standpoint. Even the multiple oh, clones of cancer, no sense. <laughs>
I think it's a fascinating mm. topic. Honestly, I do. Actually, I, I, I got into it because I was thinking about the, the, the link between obesity and cancer. And then as I started reading, I'm like, holy crap, there's a huge story here that nobody talks about. Even the cancer doctors don't talk about this. And I'm, I'm like blown away. I'm like, why aren't you teaching this? Because it makes sense. We're already following it. But like three people talk about it, right? Even like uh, even, uh, you know, in, in, in the, what's that book? The, the Emperor of All Maladies. Like, I don't see any talk about it. It's like, why not? This is like the biggest thing in the last oh, 10 years. Here, Jason. <laughs> it starts here. It begins here. Thank you so much, so much for this. I, I just, I'm, I'm so excited about what it's going to catalyze, I think, in, you know, feedback. And, uh, you know, we have a big oncology community, not just patient-wise, but in industry and, and I'm proud because it helps us celebrate. And this this is one thing I have been vocally sharing since our part one of this episode. And every talk I've done since then, you know, I, I just I'm zealous about it now because I think people are very hungry and desperate and frustrated. You know, the non-medical patient, I'm like, why haven't we figured this out? Why does it seem just like fly by the seat of your pants? You know, and and this helps to start maybe explain it and kind of almost vindicates or validates that concern because it, it is yeah. almost to a frustrating level with the amount of detriment it does and amount of money and technology and everything we have. I get it. I get the frustration on why it's like, Oh, it's a hoax. They're purposely hiding the cure. And, but you, you know, you're explaining, I think it's obviously not that, but it's just like, look at it through the other line, like swap the lens. We're getting there, but just like, look yeah, at change it. the paradox because and, think about it. Yeah. Think about your patient, right? So we should be doing a trial on those people who respond extremely well to, you know, chemotherapy to stop it early, right? Rather than maximally tolerated dose MTD, stop it, watch it, and then retreat as needed, right? And then maybe they survive longer. Yeah. I mean, that's why like they'll say like you can, it's always an option. And again, to your point, it's like, why sometimes? Why if you have a mutation, it's sometimes cancer, sometimes it isn't, it should be the same Same thing. These all say like, there are a lot of, you know, regimens. We're taught as a younger oncologist, like, oh, you always treat of some kind, maintenance therapy. It was crazy that they stopped it. But it's still like not crystal like clear. It's not 100% like, oh, if you stop it here, it'd be better. That's why you always have that option. Continue maintenance or wait till return. And I never understood that at first. I was like, why, why wait till return? That's crazy. But again, how hard, how much do you want to suffocate that cellular adaptation and and then also the heterogeneity, that kind of calamity that occurs probably to escape under that pressure. Um, now it, it really helps make sense of that. And I think that should be part of the decision-making, if nothing else, yeah. when patients... And we should have studies that help guide us, uh, right? Right? Because yeah. yeah. I, I guarantee you, like 95% of the research dollars in cancer is going towards the genetic paradigm of cancer because people don't understand, oh, right. hey, we've moved past that. So it's like, oh, well, if 95% of your billions of dollars are going to study the genetic causes of cancer or what genes are involved in cancer, you're missing the boat because it's not that there are genetic mutations, it's why are there genetic mutations, right? We know there are genetic mutations. We want to know why. Why are there 700 genetic mutations, right? And it explains all sorts of things, right? It explains why, uh, you know, you have 100 people in a cancer clinic, so you have 100 different, completely different mutational profiles, 
right? But they all look the same. Phenotypically, they all look the same. How did they all get to that same spot? Well, it was the kernel of cancer. That kernel of cancer is just being unveiled in different ways, right? You had you knocked off the sort of overlying thing. You had the underlying playbook, that competitive playbook, and you took out the old playbook. That's all it was, right? But the playbook was always there. The single-celled organism playbook was always there. So again, so so opens up so many possibilities, right? Because it 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 to me it's it's a you know, it's a hopeful thing. It's it's great that we have this because by the two by 2010, 2012, remember all those studies, Vogelstein studies and stuff, 2012, 2013, they're talking about mm-hmm. heterogeneity and 700 mutations. In the mid-2010s, everybody's like bummed out because it's completely unusable. This somatic mutation theory is completely unusable. So to have a new sort of theory of, of cancer is just... It's going to open up so many doors as long as people understand it. It's 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 crazy. It is. It, it's. I mean, I'm literally. I'm just trying to celebrate, wrap my head around. I mean, it is. And but it starts with things like this. So that's why I'm so appreciative. And I was like, I mean, you. The fact that you were just like, yeah, we'll get on again and this and that. Like, it, this is necessary. And now I see why. Like at the end of this, you know, I see why. Like you, you feel like a an ethical. Like this is a necessity. This is how we make progress in the right direction is to talk about it to understand it to be humbled by our limitations and how hard we work and yet we're still seeing these you know outcomes like we are this does it and i'm so grateful for that 